Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. In your Bibles, Bible apps, uh, we'll wrap up a, a, uh, the first section here in Dr. Luke's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Dr. Luke has been writing this account. Uh, if you look down at our scripture lesson, look at verse 51. It's kind of a, a trigger, a pointer. It says, when the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. All right, so closing this major section, we've been saying Jesus has been preaching and teaching and healing and ministering in Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem. Still a lot of things that Jesus will do, including, as we'll see today, continually, continuing to train his disciples, particularly the 12 apostles. But the end, Luke is saying, is coming near, drawing to a close. The journey to Jerusalem will take us from chapter 9, end of 9, through chapter 19, where Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, weeping, because he knows that Jerusalem has rejected God and destruction is coming. But this first section closes with the disciples still really struggling to comprehend, to understand who is Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ? And, and we're going to see some real failures today. And I like to say, before we judge, let's relate. In some ways, you and I are still trying to figure out what does it mean, what does it look like to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. August 13th coming up will be an anniversary for me, 36 years of when God the Father snatched me from a very dark place and transferred me, as Colossians says, to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it's by God's grace I'm still learning. It's by God's grace he is still patient with me, teaching me by his word, by his spirit, by the church, the family of God. What it means, what it looks like to be a devoted Christ follower. We're all at that place, aren't we? In our text this a.m. this morning, we see the disciples lacking faith, lacking the ability to understand the, the mission, the cross. They're arguing about who's the greatest, and they lack wisdom and what to do about others, specifically for those who are not in their inner circle. So we keep that in mind as we look at this text. Also keep in mind, if you remember, Luke chapter 9, the beginning of the chapter, he calls the names, the apostle, and gives them 12 authority, power and authority, Jesus does, to not only proclaim the gospel, but to proclaim the gospel and to heal diseases and cast out demons beginning of the chapter. So we'll see the disciples still have a lot to learn. They still need to heed what Father, God the Father said from heaven in verse 35. Listen to him. <laughs> we need that as well. Four headings today. Um, anybody, you can raise your hand. Anybody familiar with Warren Worsby? Anybody? Yeah, us older people. Yeah, none of the guys going, yeah. He's a great Bible teacher. I, I'm assuming he's passed because I started reading him a long time ago, and he was old then. I'm old now, so I'm not saying anything. But, um, anyway, he had the B-series. Remember the B-series? He's a good commentator if, you, if you're interested in a short. Uh, but anyway, he's a B-series. So I was thinking about him this week. Don't know why. So we're going we're gonna to look at the four headings. Be faithful. Be focused. Be humble. And be wise. Instead of going with the negative, we're going to go with the positive. Although there's a lot of struggle going on here. So, number one, be faithful. I know there's a lot of text up there, but I want to put it on one shot. 
Um, so the Mount of Transfiguration, remember last week, ends. Jesus descends from the mountain. Three closest companions, James, uh, Mark, and John. James, John, and Peter? Okay. I heard someone say it. Um, and they arrive, and there's this big crowd there coming down from the mountain. We talk about mountain experiences. You know, you spend a time and maybe a day or two at a conference. It's just, it's just awesome. You're like, wow, that was a great mountain experience. But can you imagine this one? The intrinsic divine glory of God just shines through the clothes, the face, the garment of Jesus. You're coming down from that mountain. I mean, how does it get better than that? But then we read in verses 37 through 43, literally all hell broke loose. There's a man, a father, pleading with them, deliver my son from demon possession. Nothing new about being demon possessed. We've seen it. We've seen them delivered by the, by the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is different in this text, the text tells us that the apostles tried but couldn't do it. They were unable to deliver the boy. The text tells us not, not when that occurred. We don't know exactly when the apostles had uh, interactions with the dad. Maybe it was during the beginning of the chapter when he was sent out uh, in authority to, to heal and to preach. Maybe it was the other nine apostles at the bottom waiting for the three to come down and they couldn't do it. We don't know. But one thing we know for sure. They needed help. They couldn't do what only God could do. This text is also is found in the gospel according to Mark in chapter 9. And in that we learn that the, the boy came to Jesus and Jesus says to him, how long has this been happening to him? A convulsion and foaming at the mouth. The father said it was from childhood. And Jesus says, uh, excuse me, then he, he turns to Jesus in Mark chapter 9. He says, but Jesus, uh, even though it's from childhood, if you could do anything, have compassion on us. We heard you're compassionate. Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus turns to this man in Mark 9 and says, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of, of this child cries out, I believe. And then you remember what he says? Help my unbelief. Also a mark at the end of this narrative story, the disciples take Jesus like, hey man, Jesus already delivered him. He's like, we, we couldn't do it. What's the problem? Jesus says something very interesting. He says this type of demonstration of power, delivering this boy from demon possession, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Here in verse 40 it says the father begged the disciples they couldn't do it. What's very interesting is that the disciples lacked prayer and therefore lacked the power and authority was given to them by Jesus to deliver this young boy from demon possession. Yet the father, as we see in Mark 9, lacks the faith that necessary but then asks Jesus for help. And then Jesus delivers the boy from demon possession. It's a comparison, right? You have this faithlessness, a lack of prayer, of the apostles, and the genuine, truthful words of doubt from the dad. I believe, help my unbelief. What tell, that tells me is that the power and the presence of God shows up in our helplessness, not in our own power, in our own strength, in our own abilities. Rather arrogant and rather clueless of these men to think that they had the power and authority in their own strength, with their own abilities. 
and let's be honest, can be arrogant in us, for us, that we think we can do life without prayer, without trusting in our own, trusting in God rather than trusting in our own strength and our own abilities. It wasn't because Jesus withdrew his authority and power. He didn't say, look, that was for a season. You don't have it anymore. We don't see that. It was because they lacked faith. They lacked trust. They lacked, they lacked the reliance upon the Lord. Even Jesus says in verse 41, and, I, and I, I personally think there's a little frustration. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now, whether that comment was for the Father, directly to him, I don't think so. I think more probably to the, to the disciples. It really included everyone. We conclude that the problem was that the disciples subtly moved from faith, trust, reliance in God to faith in themselves. The disciples had begun to depend on themselves, not on God. And the way that shows itself often, family, listen, is when we have a lack of prayer. We think we could do it. For, for prayer is an act of faith. It shows our dependency. We need you. I need you now. Dependency on God. The scary part is that this faithlessness of the apostles, of the, of the disciples, happened so quickly. How So, so quickly uh, uh, they went adrift. How quickly we could go adrift. Jesus says to the, to the father, verse 41b, bring your son here. And as the boy was coming, verse 42, the demon threw, the, the demon threw them in the ground and convulsed him. But rebuked the, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. And gave him back to his father. The immeasurable power, authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The boy's completely whole. Head back to his dad, fully uh, restored mind, body, and soul. And in compassion, he said, Gap compassion. Jesus in compassion gives him back to his father. And you can hear the cheers as they praise God, verse 43. And all were astonished of the majesty of God. The glorious splendor, majesty of the transfigured Christ on the mountain has now been revealed in this authority over this demon for those on the ground to the crowd below. Family, every time the Lord Jesus takes a rebellious sinner and reconciles him or her to himself, he reveals his majesty. Every time God delivers someone from the, from the crutches of, of addiction and restores them, he reveals his majesty. Every time God washes away the shame of a broken Sinful, dark place that we've come from, he reveals his majesty. Every time God grants faith and reveals the beauty and the glory of Christ, who is the gospel, to a twisted generation, one who lacks faith, he is revealing his majesty. Following Christ is a matter of faith. It is the channel, the instrument by which we receive, we walk in the benefits of Christ, the work that he has done for us, his saving work. We don't just receive it, we, we walk in it. John uh, Owens, a Puritan, said, it is, a, it is faith alone which from the beginning of the world in all ages under all dispensations of divine grace hath been the only principle in the church of living unto God, of obtaining the promises of inheriting Life eternal, and doth continue so to be unto the consummation of all things. Spiritual life, he says, is by faith, by victory, and perseverance, and salvation, 
so they were from the very beginning. In other words, what he's saying is we don't come to Christ by faith, receiving all the benefits of our salvation, and then live by some other means. Faith is the instrument the Holy Spirit uses to walk in grace. Hebrews 11, you know the verse. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen is a confidence, an assurance of the things that God has said, things that God had promised. It's a guarantee of the future that we already possess now. Do you understand that? That's biblical faith. Trusting God for who God is, who God is, and what God has already promised. And many of those things we haven't even received, but we believe by faith. We're hopeful. We have an assured hope. We're hopeful that nothing in all creation, right, will ever separate us from the love of Christ, Romans 8. We're hopeful and sure that God will never leave nor forsake his children. We find that in Hebrews and Deuteronomy. All the things we are hopeful and assured come from where? The scripture. That's why Romans says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Our hope in the unseen. Listen, rest in the revelation of God, his word. Why it's important to be in it. To heed, to do what the Father said, listen to him. Faith is more than just believing in your head, mental knowledge. It's trust. It's complete reliance upon it is the conviction of things not seen, but promise in his word, taking him at his word. How many things are we as children of God are called to believe by faith that we will finally see when we come to glory, but we wait? Things like justification. We believe by faith that we have been forgiven of our sins because of Christ and the imputation of his righteousness has been counted to us. We believe that. The scripture tells us that. Ephesians 1, Paul, the apostle, uh, tells the church and tells us of the blessings of God who blessed us where? In every spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm. And then Paul goes on to say what some of those things are. That we believe by faith. Our election in Christ. Our adoption as sons of God. Our holiness. Our redemption through the blood of Christ for our sins. All of it by grace to receive by faith. All these promises come through the means of faith in the word of God and the beloved Savior, our God and Savior. The takeaway of this narrative, I don't think, is how to perform an exorcism. I don't think that's the takeaway. I mean, that's rare. But that we need to pray. Family, we need to pray. We need to be reminded. We need to, be pray. We need to pray with faith. We need to trust God that we will live for his glory and his mission by walking and trusting and relying upon him. Listen, the, 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 the choice to drift into faithlessness or faithful in prayer and, and walking in reliance upon him. I say let's choose be faithful. Amen? Be focused. Verses 43b through 45. Jesus once again is reminding them of the cross. And he says to the disciples, let these words sink into your thick Hard heads. No, I would say that. He's, he's much more gentle and kind than I am. I hear Bill Blake laughing. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered. Interesting passive voice, meaning that someone's doing it. It's the Father's plan. You're going to be delivered. Part of the plan of Almighty God. 
You'll be delivered into the hands of God. And why would, God, why would Jesus remind them again? We'll see more. And he's reminding them of the cross because they, like us, can be easily distracted. We can easily seek power, not suffering, self-glory, not God's glory. We can easily be drawn away from the true spiritual battle that is before us by being distracted by a battle that had already been fought and won by another. Jesus disarmed the enemy, triumphing over them, the Colossians tells us. Ultimately, family, Satan and his demons are not the greatest threat. They're not the greatest problem we have. We need to be reminded of the cross. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What's the point? Jesus is saying, fear the Lord. He's able to both destroy the soul and the body in hell. Only God can do that. In the last days, Satan himself will be cast into hell, which is the Lord's domain, not his. You see, God is holy, and God is perfect, and God is just, and God is righteous, and he alone will punish sin, for he cannot and will not embrace it, for in him, the Bible says, there is no darkness at all. And I think at times we lose the focus of what's most important. I know I do. That is why here at King's Chapel, we have three core values. The first core value, the big E on the I chart, is eternity gospel redemption, right? What is first and foremost for all of mankind is how can a sinful creature, man or woman, child, be redeemed, be reconciled to a holy God? And all the other problems of suffering and, and struggles are minute in comparison to that eternal question. And then Jesus spoke, keep your eyes on the mission, the ultimate mission, the cross. It says they did not understand <laughs> what he was saying. It was concealed from them. So they might not perceive it. They were afraid to even ask. You see, this fourfold negative is on purpose. It's driving home the point. Disciples had turned their eyes away from the cross. They were not even willing to ask the question to learn and lead them into the knowledge of salvation. Now, there's a question with commentators about this concealment, lack of perceiving. How did that happen? Was it their own human ignorance? It just couldn't figure it out? Was it divine intervention? God purposely withheld the revelation of the cross at a, at a specific time? Or was their concealment of the cross part of the work of the enemy? So Pentecost, maybe, until the Spirit was given. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us that unbelievers are blinded by the enemy, right, by Satan, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's hard to know for sure what Luke is saying, but one thing they all have in common, whether it's their own ignorance, whether the father in the moment, or whether it was Satan himself, one thing they all have in common is all of them, all, all of us need the intervention of God to reveal the beauty and the glory of Christ in the gospel. No one in the natural, no one whom the Bible says are dead in their sins and trespasses can in and of themselves come to life. Come to faith in Christ. Understand the cross by their own strength, their own power, their own natural insight and intellect. It doesn't work. We're dead in our sins. It's not that the disciples, listen, it's not that the disciples didn't have a clue about Roman crucifixion. Like, oh, I never heard that before. They've been crucifying people for a long time. The real issue for the apostles, and we talked about this, is how could God's Messiah 
How could God's promised anointed king, how could the one who's supposed to come then go and suffer and die and be rejected and go to a cross? Or even better, why? What, what kind of plan is that? What kind of purpose is that? How can God's great salvation, a future kingdom, come through betrayal, through, through rejection, through crucifixion? Remember, in that day, many of the disciples, when they hear that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the son of David, the promised eternal one, it would have awakened in their minds all kind of hopes, all kind of dreams of the arrival of this kingdom. We've talked about that. God bringing judgment, putting all things right, vanquishing evil, evil, ousting the rulers of the world, establishing his eternal kingdom on earth, vindicating righteousness, basically waiting for an earthly kingdom. In many ways, unfortunately, we may not say that out loud, but sometimes with the way we act and sometimes the place in which we put our hope, we kind of say the same thing, that somehow some law, some political party, some social program is going to fix all the problems of the world. It's not. Not that anything of that is inherently evil, but the gospel, the good news is the king of kings has come. The true king has come, and he, he didn't come first to correct all social injustices, but first to come to forgive sin, to heal our broken, sinful, separated hearts. That brought a lot of confusion around the person and work of Jesus, the anointed king, suffer and bear the sins of many. Who is this Jesus? We've seen that with Peter. And, 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 and when, when Jesus revealed that he is the, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king who will come, but he's suffering and, and die, and Peter rebukes the Lord for that. Like, you, you're putting two people together, the suffering servant and the king. I, I don't get it. Even last week on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus reveals his intrinsic glory, and Elijah and Moses show up. What are they talking about? The Exodus. Jesus' Exodus. Going to Jerusalem to suffer, to be rejected, to be crucified. An ultimate resurrection that will take place in Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, look, guys, you need to focus, man. I'm on a divine clock. A divine calendar. Yes, uh, I'm going to Jerusalem, but I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule but to serve. That's how I'm going to put everything right. That's the gospel. Stay focused on what's most important. What's eternally important. God has declared there is a way that seems right to man, but in its end, the way to death. In 1 Corinthians, one, uh, uh, Paul writes this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, those, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand signs, Greek, non-Jews demand wisdom, but we preach what? Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but... To those who are being called, they hear the call of God to repent and believe. To those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Focus on the cross, guys. Don't get sidetracked. Focus on the cross. Salvation, deliverance, redemption. And it's amazing that Luke records for us this, this I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to suffer and die. And then the very next, you know, stay focused. And then the very next thing, there's an argument that breaks out. An argument arose among them. I don't know how much time, but Luke puts it together. An argument arose of which of them was the greatest. <laughs> like, 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 
When the gospel, when the cross is not the center of your life, not the focus, the purpose, the, the mission of God, it's inevitable that pride's going to take place. Greatness in the eyes and greatness of God are two different things. Greatness in the eyes of the world is power, is influence, intellect, wealth. Greatness in the eyes of God is humility. And religious pride is the worst of all prides. I mean, wow, after being lovingly rebuked for faithlessness, not focusing on the mission, the cross, in fact, they weren't even able to comprehend it. Now you're about arguing who is greater. I'm greater than you. I'm greater than you. I'm much better than you. We can only imagine what's going on. Now, what I want to do is take a short little bunny trail because we talk about pride. There are two types of two ways we can view pride. There's one way we can view pride, view pride as saying something like, look, I'm a worthwhile person. I have self-respect. There's a self of personal worth and honor. Like when a, when a parent says to a child, you know, I'm so proud of you. Right? I'm proud of you. A teacher says to a student, great job. You did really well. I'm proud of you. Even the scripture tells us what? To build each other up. To encourage one another daily. Now when we encourage, hey, man, I'm proud of you. You did a great job. Are we promoting the sin of pride? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Having a very low sense of value about yourself will open all kinds of destructive doors and behaviors in your life. To have a good sense of self-worth, value, purpose, important. It's, just, it's justified. If we think we are valueless and we are worthless in that sense, we have no value, we have no honor, we will live and act that, that way. And that becomes very problematic, big, huge problem. Those who are codependent, addictions, and for a lot of things in a lot of different ways, they become very problematic. Oftentimes we need to you know, remind ourselves, hey, I've, got, I've, I've come a long way. Not just how far I've got to go, but I've come a long way. But there's another definition of pride. Oxford English Dictionary, listen to this one. An unreasonable conceit of superiority. An overwhelming opinion of one's qualities or oneself. C.S. Lewis is the one that called this kind of pride spiritual cancer. He wrote in Mere Christianity, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is, listen, the complete anti-God state of mind. That's a different kind of pride. That pride is, is a pride that is a natural love for oneself magnified, magnified and perverted into the disdain of others, looking down at others. We see that going on here. Synonymous of vanity, conceit, arrogance, snobbish. Having a sense of value and self-worth is good, but when it is skewed, inwardly focused, it becomes deadly. The real question, family, now I put them both out there. Let me explain. Explain. The real question is not whether or not we have a sense of value, worth. The question is, how is it established? Follow me? How is it established? Are we the determining factor of our worth, value, or someone else? Is our value and our worth, our self-determination, uh, is it that we hold up a mirror and just tell, tell ourselves how great we are? I mean, if you feel good about yourself, keep telling yourself, pat yourself on the back, and cherish that idol in that mirror. That's one way. There is value in what we do, but we don't, what we do does not give us value. There is value in what we do, but what we do does not give us value. Nor is our worth derived from measuring up to other people. Some sort of standard. I'm better than you. Self-worth, value, satisfaction, and purpose is ultimately connected in not what you do, but who you are. Okay? 
sound a little bit like Joel Osteen, I'm sorry. <laughs> but this is important because the Bible talks about us being valuable to him. Our purpose, worth, and value is because we are created, listen, in the Imago Dei. Dignity, value, and worth, we are image bearers of God. And when we try to establish value or worth outside our relationship with God, it becomes idolatry, which leads to pride. Okay? These knucklehead disciples are arguing who's the greatest. They're trying to get their esteem by being better than other people. Quite honestly, I don't think there was a great one among them at that point. And when Jesus said, deny thyself, pick up your cross and follow me, it went right over their head. Jesus, knowing the reasoning, I don't think he was there when the argument, they probably didn't argue in front of him, but he knows because he, Jesus knows all things. He took a child, put him by his side. Verse 48, said to him, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. What a, what a beautiful picture. We could see it. Jesus grabbing a young child, bringing that child he loves children. You know, in that day, religious leaders, you may not understand this, because we live in a culture where we worship our children. That's not good either. Um, but in, in that day, some of the religious leaders ignored children in those days. A child, although a child was loved, uh, it was the smallest and most powerless individual in the Hebrew culture. They couldn't give a whole lot. One of the Jewish leaders regarded spending time with children to be a waste of time. This is what he wrote. Morning sleep, oversleep, midday wine, Chattering with children and tarrying in places where men of common people assemble destroy a man. End quote. According to Jesus, when people have the humility to become like children, they're welcoming the triune God. You love me, you love them, you love me. If you love me, the Father will love you. True greatness in the eyes of God comes when we take the lowliest place and be humble, seeking no recognition. Hey, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. Showing concern for the weak and the helpless. When Jesus takes this child to his side, I want you to understand that culture. If you were invited to a home, and let's say 10 people were going, and the guest of that home said to you, of all the 10 people, you come and sit next to me. That's a place of prominence. Jesus takes his child and says, come sit next to me. Right? Come sit next to me. And so this little child, who would they, have not, who they would not have looked on with great regard and respect, is invited to sit as, as if Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you need to understand my kingdom. It is the least who are great. It is the least who get the prominence. In my kingdom, it, it, the, the self-occupied, those who have delusions of grandeur are not the great one. It is the humble ones who serve and consider them the least. I mean, if you're going to follow a Savior, if you're going to love Jesus and walk with the Messiah who was crucified, who gave up his life for you, like a common criminal nailed to a cross, we all have to come to the conclusion that greatness may be very different than what the world thinks. What this argument is revealing to us is that the disciples had an overestimate, overestimation of self and an underestimation of God. Dr. David Garland, in his exegetical commentary, writes this. As one who is regarded as small, weak, and dependent, a child is the perfect illustration of those who are the most responsive to God's grace. 
Those who swagger in their vainglory and wish to be crowned the greatest resist grace. There is no point at being at Jesus' side unless one is humble enough to be at a child's side, end quote. Be humble. C.J. Mahaney, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. This is the twin reality. All genuine humility is rooted in a deep understanding of both. End quote. You ever hear, God, God helps those who help themselves. Ridiculous. Just read James. God opposed the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or read 1 Peter 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, not some of you, all of you with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Do you realize they're trying to exalt themselves? And the Bible says that humility is what acts like a magnet to draw God close. And God comes close to us when we are humble. We're attracted to we are brought into his peace and into his presence. I mean, think about that. I want, I want to be close to God. Right? We have the heartbeat, right? I want, I want to be in his presence. I want a taste of his grace. How? By being humble. By being humble. Keeping the reality of the cross. Centering a life around him. Not exalting yourself. See, Family, we'll go to this next point. Let me just say this. When you and I continually rehearse the gospel, we talk about that here all the time. Rehearse the gospel every day, saying and thinking and believing, look how wicked I am, look how sinful, look how wretched and putrid my sin is, but look at the bloody cross. Look at the empty tomb. Look at all that God has done in love to forgive and to redeem and to draw him close to me. His love, his grace, his mercy has forgiven me of my sin and has brought me into reconciliation with him. How can I look at other people and look down on them? You can't if you're humble. Be faithful, be focused, be humble, and finally be wise. John answered, Master. I, 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 Luke is putting these stories together. I mean, if you just look at them, it's, it's kind of crazy. Really, we need to be humble? I just saw someone casting out demons. In your name, we tried to stop him. He doesn't follow with us. Okay. Selfish pride that drove the disciple to seek greatness in this great little circle. I guess they wanted to keep people out of it. I don't know. They, wanted, they didn't want anyone in the circle empowered to keep them out. Kind of arrogant, I think, of John or any of the 12 at this point as they are continually seeing their failures, they can't get it right, to have some sort of, like, you want to be a model disciple, follow us. We got it right. You guys got it wrong. <laughs> Notice what it says in the text. Because they rebuked the one casting out demons in his name that wasn't with them. Notice it says that. What, because they wouldn't follow. Look what it says. Because he does not follow with who? Us. We need to be careful that we regard our call to follow Jesus, a call of mission, a call of humility. 
service, not entitlement and privilege and exclusion. I guess the child on Jesus' side went over their head as well. Is that they're responding, I mean, we can help the weak, we can help the children, we, we get that, but there has to be some distinction between us and them. I mean, there's got to be something. It appears that this, this disapproval of this one boils down to one thing. He's not in our group, not part of the clique, not part of our tribe. We try to shut him down. What happens is they raise their group, their, 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 their little clique, their little gathering above the mission itself. The question that John needs to answer, and we need to answer, is this. What, what goes through our minds? What do we think? How, how do we feel? And where is our perspective when someone maybe is doing a better job? Maybe leading people to faith. Maybe growing in the scripture, growing in knowledge of the grace of God. I mean, do you look down on that person? Are you jealous about that person? Are you able to celebrate with that person? You have the, you know, when someone receives honor and you think you should be the one, will you be able to honor and love that person? Unfortunately, what happens a lot of times when people are doing stuff like that, we, 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 rather than join in with and rejoice, we are sometimes gathering in our smaller circles, whether it's, whether it's theological, racial, economical, uh, social, the cliques, and, and we act as if no one outside this group of people really is faithful, is really doing the work of the Lord, is really on mission, because she's not part of us. And that could be harmful to the kingdom of God. The main thing becomes whether they are with us rather than when they are with Jesus. Are they with Jesus? Now, it doesn't mean, okay, let me just make this clear. It doesn't mean there aren't good and necessary distinctions that need to be made in life and in ministry. There are falsehoods out there, all right? As the thing is truth and false, good and evil, the true gospel and the false gospel. Paul said in Galatians 1, uh, those who are preaching a false gospel, let them be anathema, let them be accursed. Okay? So, the, you know, concerning the things uh, uh, with, you know, the truth of the centrality of the gospel that needed to be defended. Jude uh, Jew tells us the same thing. But tribalism, this clickiness, if that's a word, occurs among people who all name Christ as Lord, believe the same gospel, but because they are not with us, we are not with them. It's, it's being small-minded, not kingdom-minded. And the principle Jesus lays out for them is in verse 50. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Right? He's not saying it doesn't matter what anyone believes or thinks uh, concerning you know, any, any kind of fundamental matters of truth and doctrine, but what he's saying is there are various ways that people who are fighting against the powers of darkness are doing things differently, doing gospel work differently than maybe you're doing. You know, there's no neutrality. Jesus is not you know, saying just let everyone do anything they want. In fact, Jesus will say in chapter 11, uh, talking about fighting the enemy, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, as lead pastor, and I'll say this for the other pastors of the church, we are to take proper spiritual oversight for the doctrine and the teaching of our church, as with all leaders and all pastors and elders in all the churches. We want to avoid, uh, as we defend the cause of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the doctrinal soundness of the gospel, what we want to try to avoid is to play the Holy Spirit. We've had that conversation in our pastor's meetings. We don't want to get in the way. J.C. Ryle grieves the way thousands of Christians, he says, in every period of Christian history or the period of the church, 
have spent their lives in copying John's mistake. They have labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way, working from working, excuse me, they have labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They have imagined in their petty self-conceit that no one can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. We forget that no church on earth has absolute monopoly on all wisdom and that people may be right in the main without agreeing with us. Then he writes this. <coughs> We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed, the gospel is preached, and the devil's kingdom pulled down through the work may not be done exactly the way we like it. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted, Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he may belong, end quote. In our church, we went through this series, some of you haven't heard it before, we have, the, we have a closed hand, open hand mentality. We have closed hands to the important, sound, fun, fundamental things of the gospel. The, the, the deity of Christ, the, the, the work of atonement, the virgin birth, the authority of scripture. And we have an open hand on some of the stuff that methods by which we do some of that stuff. Different cultures have different ways of doing things. When you have two closed hands, you have fundamentalism and legalism. When you have two open hands, you have liberalism, you stand for nothing. We hold to the things we need to hold, and we're open about methods. We're open about methods. Um, that's, that's what we try to hold here. I mean, in Numbers 11, um, Joshua, Moses' protege, sees two men, elders, prophesying, preaching. And he runs to Moses. He's like, look, look, this ain't right. They're robbing you of your prominence. And Moses turns to them in 1129 of, of Numbers and says, are you jealous for my sake? With that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. In other words, they're doing the work of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, we know, under Roman arrest, learned about some competing preachers who seemed to be taking the opportunity for self-promotion. And what does Paul say in Philippians 1? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Let's not forget, in our text, a man was delivered from demons. We should rejoice in that, regardless if they've done it our way or not. People doing the work in the power, in the power and the presence of Jesus have the shared goal of being used to further the kingdom. There must be cooperation, collaboration. We have the LCM. We have different churches coming together. There's some things that need to be worked out distinctively. I get that. But we need to be more kingdom minded. I need to be more kingdom minded. And then finally, the last verse, verse 51. Divine clock is ticking. Calendar is operating according to God's plan. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Family, I, with the authority of, of the scriptures, let me tell you, there wasn't a single moment, not a single moment in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in all the frustrations of dealing with a bunch of knucklehead disciples, including you and I, you're welcome. Not one single moment did he sway from full obedience to the Father's plan to redeem, to rescue, restore, and renew people unto himself. I'm going to Jerusalem, man. Philippians 2, those in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want to invite the band up. And let me say this as we go to communion. Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not to take my place, the rightful place of king of kings on a throne, to reign and rule, but to die on a Roman cross, to suffer, to be rejected, to be crucified, but I will rise again. And Jesus himself is our motivation, isn't he? Rather than holding on to the privilege of his own exalted position in glory as the son of God, he humbled himself to live among us and offered his life for our sins. Rather than holding on to the privilege of his own exalted position, he obediently and he faithfully and completely trusted the Father to the point of his last breath. Luke 22. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. After after saying this, he breathed his last. Now, the only way that you and I should come to this communion table is by faith. Trusting that Christ died for our sins, trusting that he paid the penalty for our sins, trusting that he absorbed the wrath we deserve for our sins, and that his sacrifice on the cross was accepted because the tomb is empty. Payment was made, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice was accepted, and in humility we accept That we are unable to earn forgiveness. We are unable to work our way into the relationship with God. That we must rest completely and solely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting him and him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. And by his unfathomable grace, he offers us the gift of salvation. He actually offers the gift of himself to us through the cross. And the resurrection. That's what this table is about. So this table is for those who have faith. Who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Who acknowledge their sin. They acknowledge his holiness. They acknowledge their need for redemption and forgiveness of sin. And have turned from trying to be their own Savior and Lord. And trusted and relied upon Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of their lives. They're not walking in their own ways. They're walking and following Jesus in their ways. That's what this table is for. That's this table. If you're invited to this table. If you have that faith. So we're going to spend some time. The band's going to lead us in music. You're going to come up down these aisles, grab your elements, sit back at the chair with your elements, pray, confess, repent of sin, and then we're going to celebrate by faith the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Christ, just stay seated. We love you. We're glad you're here. It's a family table. It's for those who have faith in Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for reminding us that, yes, we can be wayward, we can forget how powerless we are, and God, sometimes we could be filled with pride, and sometimes we can rely upon ourselves, but Father, you are good. You are good. You are always good. You love your children. Lord Jesus, you died for our sins. Holy Spirit, you are constantly pointing us to the cross. And to the empty tomb. So we're thankful that we have forgiveness. We're thankful that we're, even though we are faithless at times, you are faithful. You will not deny yourself. So we pray, Father, as we sing, as we prepare our hearts, as we take of the elements together, that our faith would increase. 
that our strength would increase. Our reliability upon you will increase. And we would rest solely upon you. And God, we pray as we do that you would send us out of this place. Telling others how great and awesome you are. How good and great Jesus is. All that he has accomplished. And by your spirit we pray, Father, that you will draw many people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So their sins can be forgiven. And they could become part of your family. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.